Welcome to Confessions of a Melanated Queen, a podcast designed to celebrate achievements within black culture. Here's your host, Dr. Lauren Meeks. Welcome back to Confessions of a Melanated Queen. Guys, here's my confession this week. So I've been getting a lot of compliments on how comfortable I am on the mic, how comfortable I am with posting stuff on social media, how I have a like a tell it like it is type of mentality. What you all don't know is that there's a key person who's played a role in that. So uh, about a year ago, I was working for a girls mentoring program and I was on LinkedIn and I've been on LinkedIn for a couple of years now. And I was a lurker. I didn't post. I didn't respond to comments. I just lurked like a lot of people do. And there was this brother who was an educator who had posted a question, a very genuine question, uh, because he's an educator and he wanted to know from his colleagues, you know, how he can respond to a certain situation. So I think that he, his question was regarding, you know, um, educating girls in the classroom as a male teacher and that, you know, sometimes the, the, the awkwardness of that relationship with girls coming up and how they respond to their male teachers. And he was truly looking for advice. And what our next guest does not know was that he was the first person I ever responded to in public. And I was scared to death because I had never responded to a question. I never commented on a post before, but his was the first. So George Stewart, the second out of Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome to the show. You did not know that, did you? I did not know that. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I did not. Yes. George, you remember that question you asked? I do, I do, and, it, and, it's, and it's still a question that I'm that I'm still seeking answers for. Well, this day, but I, I I've gotten a lot better with it. But I do remember that question. You did, and you didn't know that. So your that was the first time I'd ever responded to anybody on LinkedIn before. Because I mean, I know it sounds crazy now, especially what I'm doing now. But a year later, thinking about it, at that time. I didn't really feel comfortable communicating with people online. I went on there to learn, to read articles, to kind of, you know, learn from other people, but I never felt the need or necessary for me to be a part of the conversation though. But at the time, because I was working with young ladies, it really hit me. And I was like, I got to say something because I knew, I knew that your question was genuine and I wanted to give a a, a genuine response, but I was nervous as heck. And until you (laughs) responded back and said, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I was like, okay, not that bad. That's right. So you played a big role in everything that I'm doing, you know, from because wow, it, it, it took that first step. So I want to thank you for that. So I had to have you on a show because um, having dialogue like that online is very important. Oftentimes with, with the platform that I use and other things that I do, you know, we have some serious conversations and sometimes we joke around. Sometimes we talk about business stuff, but you are an educator in Jackson, Mississippi. You're also a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. Shout out to Divine Nine. Blue Fi, welcome. You know. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just want to talk to you today about the state of affairs in education. Is, is September, um, is back to school. Um, kids are going back to school. Parents are preparing for their kids to go back to school. Um, you know, I pray that we have a safe school year this year. I've been praying over my son every day since he started. But it's wonderful to have an advocate in the community, someone in the classroom, especially an African-American male in the classroom who is also a father himself, um, who can really help us understand and garner information about what we should be doing. Because oftentimes we think back on the years that we were in school, we really don't really know what's going on now, what Common Core and some of the standards have changed. I just wanted to take a moment to chat with you about that today and see where you're at. So let me pass the mic to you. Tell us more about you and what you do. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, again, uh, I am an educator in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, specifically in the south side of Jackson. Um, I am. I work with six, seven, and eighth grade students. I'm what they consider. I'm more of an interventionist. So I work with students who are what they call the bottom 25% according to their performance on last year's state uh, state test. So I work with those that need a little bit of extra help. Again, I work with sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and so. I've been teaching. This is actually, I'm actually going into my 12th year in education and my 10th year as a classroom teacher. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also an advocate for parents and for kids. And I, a lot of work that I do outside of the classroom, it revolves around um, getting information to parents uh, that need some information regarding education and, and how to get connected to resources and things like that that help. Um, helps them to help their child become um, better emotionally, academically, spiritually as well. Uh, so um, I definitely advocate for parents and kids as well. Uh, I'm also a board member for a organization called Mississippi Families as Allies, and we work with parents who are raising kids with um, mental health and behavior issues. And so I'm just an educator and an advocate for kids and, pa- for kids and families, and I, I love what I do. Absolutely. Well, you just brought up something I thought was really um, important. You were mentioning kind of like the holistic approach, the social, emotional, spiritual components yeah. to educate now. And I've noticed that in the work that I've been doing in schools, it's like a, a um, community-based nonprofit program developer. Sometimes I've, I've worked with organizations where I partner with schools and we provide in-school at, well, in school or after school programming for their youth. Tell me a little bit about the state of affairs with education. I mean, how is it different than what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? For an example, I'm seeing now yoga in the classroom. I'm seeing meditation in the classroom. Now, I'm, I don't know if that's an Illinois thing or is it a national thing, you know, what's happening with that. But what, what are some of the, the, the changes that um, kids are experiencing now in school compared to what their parents may have experienced? Now, I, and I'll say this, um, my entire career in education, I've only worked in inner city schools or schools that are considered Title I schools. So a lot of what I say comes from that perspective. And so a lot of what I, a lot of what I see in schools that are, first of all, one thing that's different is that we're testing our kids to death. I mean, we're testing them like crazy. Um, a lot of times, uh, in the, in the past, even up until this year, we're testing kids. We don't even really get into the instructional piece of uh, the educational uh, program until maybe like two or three weeks uh, into the school year because we're testing like that entire week. And so we're, we're testing kids a whole lot more than I remember being tested growing up. Uh, one of the things that I see uh, is, and you'll and you notice I talk a lot about this uh, online and offline as well, but the schools to prison pipeline still is, 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 is real. It's, it's, it's there. Um, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's something that I definitely want to see disappear. So, and I would like to get into that a little bit more uh, later if I may, but that's still uh, there. Uh, one of the things that we're focusing on this year is uh, chronic absenteeism. Uh, and that's something that we're, that we're doing some work around as well. Another thing that I see for state of affairs of education is a lot of our inner city schools are some of the most underperformed schools in the district, mostly because it's uh, underfunded and the social, emotional uh, needs as well as their economic needs are not being met as they should. So a lot of our schools in our inner cities are not doing as, doing as 
well as they could be or should be. And like I said, there, there are some external uh, issues that I believe that uh, are affecting that. So those are a couple of things that I definitely uh, see as far as the state of affairs of education, especially in the area in which I uh, live and teach. So this the current the current guest who show us as Aaron this week um, on Confessions of a Melanie Queen podcast is Dr. Shaniqua Jones. Now she is a um, restorative justice practitioner in like the the, the Cook County um, community of Chicago. And so she is doing a lot of work in that. And she was talking about, you know, and, and oftentimes, even outside of our podcast, she shares about how her work um, is, is designed to combat the, the school to prison pipeline. What are you seeing in Mississippi that's being done to try to combat that? Are you guys using restorative justice? Are there any other approaches that maybe we're not aware of that's taking place? What's, what are some of the things that you, you're experiencing? And you know that's that's a great uh, that's a great question. And I will say that we're we're not doing restorative justice practices. Although I definitely advocate for that, that's something I definitely want to see here. I think that is a a, a great great program. Um, restorative justice. What 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 we do have, we're doing uh, some schools, not all schools, but some schools in our district do have uh, licensed counselors. Uh, therapists, things like that. Not as much as, as, as it should be, but we do we, we do have uh, counselors and therapists, things like that, uh, mentoring programs, uh, things like that. But I, I definitely would like to see um, the restorative justice piece added to uh, what we're doing in, in schools and in the district. But I think as far as, far as that goes, I think that needs, we need to do more as far as eliminating the school-to-prison pipeline. So I think that restorative justice piece is definitely something that needs to be added, something I definitely want to get training on myself and, and possibly present that, you know, to um, administrators as far as getting that implemented in schools and district-wide. But um, those, are the couple, those are a few things that we're doing. It's kind of minimal, but we could do a whole lot more as far as doing that. I think, I think we – I think the – to, and to, to be honest with you, I think in a lot of cases, uh, suspension and whether it be in school or out of school, that seems to be the answer, you know, that, that people are, uh, administrators are going to as being a way to alleviate the issues in the school. They see that as the answer. And so uh, I definitely don't agree with that. And so I definitely feel there should be uh, another way, and I like to call them in-school diversion programs, and it's things like the restorative justice um, piece, and like more mentoring programs, and as well as uh, counselors and therapists and things like that to alleviate that whole going straight from the classroom to in-school suspension or straight from the classroom to out-of-school suspension, which leads our kids to uh, drop out, and eventually uh, some of them end up in the criminal justice system. Right, absolutely. Because I, it would the at the time when, especially when you posed that question last year about you know working with the young ladies, I was working for a girls mentoring program, and the program that we, that we were running, <coughs> funded, in part because, in Chicago public schools, there's there there has, there has been an issue with um with truancy, 
And so for those kids with low attendance, we were trying, they were trying to offer external programming efforts that would encourage kids to come to school. And so it, it the, the trouble with it was that it's difficult. So if a, if a young lady's already missing, you know, a, a good amount of, of, of school, you know, throughout the school year, it's hard to not only recruit her, but get her to, to come to school. And oftentimes for high school, they only wanted you to come in after school, which is almost impossible to get kids to stay up to school for a program. So there were some challenges, but we found a way to go inside the school during the lunch period and offer the programming and let the kids go get their food, sit down. And then we offer the curriculum to them at that time. But there was funding set aside for that. I mean, it is not, not a lot of people are part of those programs though, but CPS was trying to make an effort to combat that through some additional program, but it's still really tough. But yeah, you do see some RJ happening. So restorative justice is really big and people are learning. Dr. Jones is a great champion for that, but I, I can imagine how challenging it is for teachers nowadays. And you know, you got kids missing school and then I'm looking at the kids too. So if you, if you get into a fight, you get suspended you're going home and oftentimes school is your, your safe, your safe haven. So I want to get into that about these kids who are being suspended, sent home, and then they're going to an environment that's, that's not very productive for them when they could have been in school. So what, have been, what has been your experience on that? And how, how do you work with kids who, who, who've experienced that? Like what, what role do you play with that as a, as a, as a not only a mentor, but a classroom instructor? And, and you know, and, you know and, I, and just to add to that, uh, I will say, you you mentioned a couple you mentioned a, a couple things um, funding and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about how some of our schools are are not what they what they could be mm-hmm. because uh, a, a lot of times when you think of Mississippi you think of poor state poor state in the nation but I but I also feel that uh, Mississippi has money for what they want to have money for and so what I what I feel is that a lot of the money is not being put in in uh, programs such as restorative justice and things like that so when you when you mentioned funding that is that's huge um, because a lot of times it, it takes funding to have those types of programs put those people in place for that and that's not that's not really happening on a large scale in Mississippi especially in our in our uh, environments where we where they're, they're underserved but as far as the role but you but you mentioned something as far as like a lot of times we should see these kids when we talk about school to prison pipeline a lot of these kids that are getting into fights and things like that are going straight from the classroom and they're sometimes bypassing the suspension aspect of it they're going they're going to the juvenile justice system that's a whole that's a whole another issue right there but um my role you know in that is is although there's not there's no funding per se often for a mentoring program a part of my my role as teacher is mentoring you know, it's mentor, it's uh, unofficial counselor, you know, things like that. And so uh, it, it goes beyond just the classroom instructional piece of education. And so my role, especially with our young boys, because typically what you see is most of the kids that get suspended, or whether it be in school or out of school, what you see is that it's like unproportionately male. And so, um, my, so my role as a male, uh, especially a, a male, a, a black male teacher, you know, is is to to be that mentor, to to be that that counselor, to be that that he be that ear or that sounding board to a lot of these kids. You know, and so I, I will say too that, and you mentioned about being a safe haven. A lot of these kids come from environments where they're getting fussed at, cussed at, and so they're here. They uh, they're in a very very negative environment. So a lot of times, my personality is is more so of a more of a, a chill, laid back personality, and the kids kind of opened up to me about certain things so I don't really come at them 
you know, with the negative and things like that or come at them in a forceful way. Because, I mean, because it'll be real about it, a lot of those kids, they see that at home and in the streets and things like that. So just being there for them, you know, being, being an ear, being a sounding board, um, counsel why I feel I need to counsel, listen why I need to listen, you know, and, and just being, just really being an active part of their lives and being somebody that they can trust and they can depend on outside of just, you know, be uh, working in the capacity of an instructor. You know, I remember, I feel like some time ago, you had shared a post, uh, one of your students had wrote a very nice note to you, but it was one of those kids that give you the flux a lot. And you were like, it goes to show how sometimes you don't know how you impact kids. You know, I mean, she, I think she, I don't know what she was doing, but it sounds like she's not always the most pleasant kid to work with, but she showed you how much she appreciated you through. So I think she drew you a picture or something. I can't remember what it was, but. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it just That's goes right. to show it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, but we, we definitely appreciate what you do because, you know, oftentimes, you know, a lot of times, I think a lot of people don't understand <laughs> that kids are people too, and they go through stuff and they have feelings and they're dealing with trauma at home um, or in That's their right. communities. And so when they come to school and like you said, they have another person. And that's the thing though, like, you know, as an adult, especially professionals, we just want kids to respect us, but we don't understand the level of disrespect they go through. And, you know, so having another right. person's down their throat can't be easy. So from your perspective, tell us a little bit more about what a day in the life of some of the kids really is. When, they, when they're coming to school, some of the stories they're sharing, what are they going through? What's really happening in our communities right now, especially in Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, a lot of these kids, and, and mind you, these kids are, you know, from 10... 11 years old, 12 to like 14, 15, sometimes 16 years old. And so, you know, typically when, when I was growing up, you know, we, although I didn't, I didn't have a lot growing up, I, I didn't, I didn't have the stress level that these kids have when not having a lot. And so a lot of these kids, uh, of course, growing up in the inner city, uh, growing up in a uh, low income, uh, uh, growing up in poverty, a lot of these kids witness a lot of a lot of violence, and so um, a lot of these kids you you will you will see, and, and it's crazy because like you can see the stress on these kids as they walk as they walk in the door. You see these little you see you see babies you know walk into a, walk into a school with just stress on them. And so when you think about so when you think about that, you're like wow. And so a lot, what a lot of these kids go through outside the poverty, and a lot of times when you're living in, in an area you know, that's, that's poverty-stricken, you have your violence. And so a lot of these kids, they deal with family members getting murdered. You know, they're, they're dealing with fathers, you know, being sent to prison. They're dealing with um, things like that. And so a lot of times, you know, that's, that's – and it's crazy because we turn on the news and you see, like, one of the kids who – who has a family member that's been murdered or so a family member whose father went to prison or something like that. And a lot of times you see kids that used to be at the school and now going on, going on to prison. And so it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's not a different story than what's happening in other, in other inner cities across the country. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of it, they deal with poverty and deal with, deal with, um, deal with violence. And a lot of times, uh, one can argue that a lot of these kids are dealing with PTSD. Mm. You know, a lot of times you think PTSD, you think about military, but mm. you have to, you have to, you have to understand that a lot of these kids are living in these violent neighborhoods while also witnessing, you know, witnessing murder and, 
and hearing about it also uh, become to, to to stress, you know, due to violence. Like I said, you think about military when you hear PTSD, but a lot of these kids, and I could argue that some of these kids are dealing with the same issues that people in, in the military deal with from, from living in violent, you know, violent neighborhoods. Because there's a war out there. It really is. And so exactly. they are experiencing exactly. it. You know, my dad, when he retired from, um, he worked for um, a Cook County health system for 30 years and he was administrator over janitorial services. And after he retired, he transitioned to a janitor at a local school. And he shared how oftentimes he'll see kids and they all, you know, all, all the kids know the school janitor and they, you right. know, he'll, and so he said that oftentimes when those parents would drop off the kids, He'll understand why the kids have the faces that they have because he look he he sees distress and trauma on the parents' face. So you know there'll be a kid that'll come in every day and they look upset or disgruntled or you know just just <laughs> angry about some things. And now when the parent when he gets a chance to really peek in in that car and see the parent who's dropping a child off, that parent has that same face. So if, if, if we may, can we get into that about the parents? What what type of experiences are they having? Um, in these communities while they're trying to bring kids up? And do you think that they, that the average parent understands the role they play in their child's education? Absolutely. And, and, and let me, and, and great question. Let me put this out there. A lot of times people assume that because these parents, you know, they're inner city parents, and regardless of what they hear, they assume that the parents don't care about education. And let me just say from my personal experience that when this is working with inner city kids, you know, for 12 years, I've never not met a parent. And I've dealt with a lot of parents. I've never not met a parent who had no concerns or didn't care about their child's education. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. So these parents definitely care. You know, like I said, a lot of times they, they put it out there, these parents, these parents don't, they don't care. They send these kids to school or whatever, and they just don't care. And, and it's not the case, you know, by and large. But a lot of these parents, again, you know, growing up in poverty, they, you know, some of them are working, some of them that are working, uh, working low-wage jobs. And so you have that stress level that they're dealing with. And sometimes that stress is transferred over to the kids, you know, uh, unintentionally, you know, I believe. But you, 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 you're seeing, you know, a household with just, you know, stressful people living together. And that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, until I don't think we ever will fix totally what's going on in the schools unless we deal with the external things out in the community and work that thing outside, you know, in like that. So, like I said, when you living in an environment where you where you where you're not making much money, or you're constantly surrounded by violence, you know, there's there's going to be stress. But you know, I I work with parents for 12 years and and they care you know they they really really do care and no they can't make every pta meeting you know they can't make every teacher teacher parent conference but you know when they do you can you can definitely tell that they that they have some concerns and so i definitely want to put that out there that these parents do care about their child's education regardless of what people may say about inner city parents they do care they just, they're just dealing they're dealing with a lot and like i said for me a lot of it goes back to on the social economic issue. Unless we actually go and address that, we're going to have a hard time fixing our schools or where they need to be fixed. Do you think that some of the parents and some of the research that even I've conducted, um, 
I agree. The parents definitely care. Um, what I have found, um, it may be at the more at the college age though. So maybe not so much in middle school or high school or even um, elementary, but with a, on the college level, a lot of times parents, because they haven't experienced certain things, they don't know how they can help. They just kind of trust the system and they just say, go for it. Um, do you think that there are any strategies that uh, while we're working through, you know, the economic situation and job situation, poverty, do you think there are any things anything that parents can do with what they do have to try to better support. And I say, for an example, even just send an email to the teacher, if they have email, you know, what, right, right. what can I do? Um, hey, I'm here. If you need me, send me a text. Is there any, any, any tips you can give to parents who, who have kids who, you know, really can't always be there, really don't always understand them. How can they begin to understand the process a little bit better and be more involved and be a better advocate for their children? Absolutely, great question. And, and and let me say that 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 that's the thing. Communication is key. Whether it's through email, whether it's through phone. A lot of times, a lot of these districts have a system where parents can go in and actually look at what their child is doing on an academic level. So they can they can go into the system. They can look and see what their child is doing in the classroom. And so um, being active in that, taking a look at what their child is doing, and if there's questions about that, you know contacting the school, whether it's calling or email or things like that. But don't, I was definitely don't assume that, you know, that the, 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 the parent or don't, don't assume that the teacher is always going to do, um, let me rephrase that. Don't, don't put all your faith in, in, in the teacher. Just actually be uh, vigilant about um, the child's education. Like you said, a lot of times parents just send their child to school and then they just let them just go at it and, and just do do what you do and then just hopefully you try to return my child back in one piece. But mm-hmm. um, definitely be vigilant about about that. And like I said, you can't know they can't always go to a PTA meeting or a parent-teacher conference, but definitely uh, look at the system. Because uh, like I said, a lot of districts have those systems where they can look in and look at the child's um, academic performance and if they see something that they don't like or uh, definitely call the school definitely uh, email the teacher uh, and, and, and set something up but just being active definitely being active and uh, communicate and also just um, let the teacher know when they are available um, to have a conversation and and just try to make sure to just keep that line of communication open that's the main thing is don't disappear always some kind of way make yourself visible, whether it be um, on the phone, email, or something like that. Definitely. Communication is definitely number one. It's definitely the key. Got you. And just to, you know, share a little, as we transition to the next question, I, I've i been kind of open about some of my personal experiences raising my son. So one of the reasons why I became so obsessed with education, and one, I, you know, I went to college and I worked in higher education for a number of years. And then there was a time five years ago, uh, almost six years ago, my son was going into, he was like in pre-kindergarten. He was like pre-K three. And we noticed that he had a speech delay. And so he will more like, um, can't remember the term for it though, but he will respond to a question with the same question you ask. So if I say, how old are you? He'll say, how old are you? And I was like, okay, we, we need to look into this. So I had him evaluated through a, with a speech therapist. And so of course she suggested that he, that we participate and take advantage of the local public school because I had him at a, I had him at a at a childcare center at my job. I worked at a community college and they had a childcare center, so it was perfect. 
but she she suggested that he goes to local public school so they can get the free speech therapy. Now, the minute he got there, literally six days into his new life at this school, so this is January, so he's a new student in the middle of, of a school year that already started. And by day six, we get a call from the social worker. By the time I'm done with the social work, I'm in tears because she's saying something's wrong. Something's wrong with him. Something's wrong with him. I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean something's wrong with him? I just sent him on a speech. What are we doing? And she goes on about how she's concerned. Can we have a meeting? Long story short, all of that resulted into me agreeing to an IEP evaluation. So he went through an evaluation. He went through, I mean, he's three now. He went through all of this and she... She felt, and this is a social worker who had never met my son, she felt like from the, from the teacher's perspective, from what she's seen, that my son may have been autistic. And so I was like, okay, that, I don't understand how you can figure that out by not never meeting him, but sure, we, we could look into that. It, in the end, we went through the IEP process. I had agreed to let him go through all this evaluation, and they, you know, the, the, the psychologist said, you know what? He's three. He's not really, you know, going to answer all of our questions and respond to the test that we're trying to give him the way we probably want him to. It's, it's too early to tell what's going on, but we do know that he can definitely use speech and he could probably use some occupational therapy. But there was something about that meeting when I was in there and my husband was against me jumping on and agreeing to everything anyway, because he just didn't trust it either. Something was odd about that meeting. Um, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I felt un uncomfortable about it. And I became obsessed with studying the, you know, what's going on with special education in American schools. And of course I started picking up books and I, and I really, honestly, that's where my doctoral journey began. Um, fast forward now, you know, it, it, I just recently resigned last year from um, serving on my son's school board at a private school because of what happened during that time. We didn't trust the public school system. We tried the private school thing for four years. I even served on the board and the miseducation was starting there as well. So I'm at the point now as a parent where I'm like, you know what? It's the beginning of the school year. He's at a new school. He's at a local public school where we pay taxes to support. And I sent an email saying, hello, my name is Dr. Lauren Meeks. I'm this child's mother. If you ever need me, I'm available. <laughs> Please let right. me know. I'm available on Fridays to volunteer. I'm learning how to kind of level everything out, you know, because I started off just really just, oh, I'm going to give him everything he needs. I'm going to be that parent. And then I was disappointed a few times. And a few times I became probably too emotional. So having said that, I shared that long story for a reason. What do you think... Because there are parents who really, truly don't trust the system because we have been fed through a um, number of books and studies and just sometimes urban theory and sometimes just real, true, proven theory that there, there are ways that school districts profit off of our children, especially when you see um, a number of, especially black boys, uh, being put in special education. But then, then there are children who really do have learning differences and they do need to be accommodated. How can we as parents put our mind at ease about that process um, without us feeling like we are being used as guinea pigs, but really truly utilizing the school system and their services to benefit our, our, our kids, our youth? Right, right. Absolutely. Um, you're right in, in that uh, we don't always uh, trust the system. And, and I will say that but just to kind of share my own my own little um, personal uh, story, I also would be being a K through 12 educator, as well as having a son who was diagnosed with autism. I sit on both sides of the table, mm -hmm. and so um, 
when I say both sides of the table, I'm talking about in the IEP process. I'm, I'm the general educator for another parent's child who um, who was being uh, discussed in an IEP meeting, as well as I attend my own son's IEP meetings as well. And so, uh, oftentimes, what 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 I, what I find is definitely connecting with uh, somebody uh, that that you trust. And def- definitely including an advocate in the process. So, like it's like you said, sometimes it's not, it's not. Um, you, you can't all, you don't always trust the system, but having somebody who's who knows about the system of special education uh, or uh, another parent, when you're going to, when you're going into that IEP meeting or something like that, actually having a person or an advocate to help guide you. Um, through that particular process as well, because like you said, a lot of times uh, they want to put our boys in, in special education, and and I have my own theories about that. You mm-hmm. know, as far as like our boys, and I and I will say, and and and, and let me just and let me just say this. Um, when when we see, and I think I posted this one time, our kids being undereducated is a problem for us, but our kids, especially our black boys, being undereducated is a, is a solution for somebody else. Now, now what does that mean? Well, what I, what I mean by that is that our kids being undereducated, oftentimes, especially kids in special education, uh, a lot of times those kids uh, go without the resources and things that they need or, or, uh, or in a system they shouldn't be in, um, them being undereducated is a solution for other people. And what I mean by that, a lot of times those kids, if, if you, if you look at the kids that or look at the kids that are in the juvenile justice system or, uh, or going off to prison, a lot of times those kids have dropped out of school or some of those kids have been placed in some type of special program and things like that. And so a lot of times, a lot of people, a lot of companies depend on our kids being undereducated because they could put them in a position to where they're being paid a low wage or if they're caught in the juvenile justice system, they're definitely being uh, what I consider uh, uh, present-day slavery. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times our kids being undereducated is a solution for others when it's definitely a problem for us. And so I think, uh, you know, in general, a lot of times when it comes to our young black men, they don't want, you know, a lot of people, corporations or things of that matter, uh, high-powered individuals, they prosper on our kids uh, working in a position that's underpaid or almost looks like uh, slave labor from, from years ago. Mm-hmm. So, but like, I said, but like you said, a lot of times so you, it's needed. But you have to definitely be be vigilant because a lot of times parents know what their kids can do. You know, with us, we knew that my we knew that my child needed some some extra attention because just to kind of share a little bit of my story, my child when he was very very young, we noticed that my child wasn't making eye contact mm. when kids typically do, and so we, there was a point in time where we thought my son was seeing ghosts because he wouldn't, you know, it just like, wow, is he seeing something? Because he never would look us in the face. Mm-hmm. And so, and then it went on to him not developing language. And by the time he was one, he still wasn't talking. And even to the day, he's still, he's still nonverbal. And so, but there were things that we noticed, like we would call his name. He wouldn't answer to his name. 
so there were definitely signs there that we knew, okay, our child is, is missing some things. He needs some help. And so we went through the whole evaluation of things that you all went that, that, that you that you went through. And so we so we knew that that our child needed needed some extra help. But parents, you know, you just paying attention to your child and, and knowing what your child needs and what it don't need. Sometimes we could be wrong. We could say, Well, your child is, you know, uh, is doing this and sometimes a child could be could be bored in school. You know what I mean? Maybe our practice is not conducive to what the child can do. And so as a parent, you know it's your child. Oh, my, well, no, I'm working with my child at home. My child does this. So I know that he's able to learn. I know he's able to do this. So how about you try this with your kid, which is why working with parents is so important because a lot of times we could force our way of teaching onto the kids when they learn a different way. So it's important that the parent, you know, understand how their child learns, what's going on with their child, and share that information. And so, but I think the main thing is just definitely, definitely understanding, knowing your child because, because you know, sometimes who knows your child better than better than you, you know. But like you said, there are people that benefit off of the undereducation of our of our young black boys. And so, like I said, that goes back, you know, that goes back to what I've been about, you know, putting our kids. Um, through special education, a lot of those kids end up in a juvenile justice system, going on to prison, you know, working for very, very extremely low wages for corporations, what looks like present-day slavery. And so, like I said, that what looks like a problem, what it, what is a problem for us is a solution for others. Right, right. So for those parents who are going through the process of maybe having a um, IEP, which is what is the Individual Educational Plan? Is right. that the acronym? For parents who That's have... Right. Who, for parents who have been presented with that, um, what advice, I know you mentioned definitely because I agree having an advocate. If it wasn't for my husband being in the room with me and then my my father saying, listen, I went through that as a kid too. This is what you should do. Just know that he's going to be okay. And just having that support because even as an educated woman, as a mother, I broke down and I literally gave up. There was a, there was a very brief moment when I gave up because I was reading to my son every day since he was two months old. And when that social worker said what she said, I don't know why my brain went to, why am I doing all this then? I don't know why I did. I'm ashamed to say, it, but it's the truth. And so if it, I happen to have a husband and a father, um, my mother was trying to be helpful, but she just as emotional as I was. So we were both a mess together, but we were very emotional people. So having a strong person in the room with me to say, uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But something about this is not right. Was helpful for me. But there are a lot of women out there, especially single moms, people in general who don't have somebody with them. And so they, right. you know, who knows what's going to happen and what they agree to do and what they, they, what questions they don't know to ask. So people who are going through that process, um, especially, those those parents who do have children special autism on the autism spectrum what advice would you give them i would i would definitely uh just going through the process i would definitely um tell them to definitely uh educate themselves on on the process uh knowing who's supposed to be in the room um and, and everything like that there should be a general educator in the room and that there should be, a, of course, a special education teacher, an administrator, and if the person wants to bring an advocate, um, bring an advocate. But definitely knowing who should be uh, in the room—that's that's that's the uh, for starters. And, and asking questions. Don't don't just assume that um, the teachers and administrators know everything. You know, um, definitely definitely ask questions. You know, um, 
that's 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 the number one thing I would I would tell them to do is definitely ask questions, definitely get a feel um, for uh, what's going on. And if you don't understand, if you don't understand what's going on, ask them to explain it a little bit, a little bit better. But don't just assume that they know everything. Um, and, and like I said, definitely, definitely ask questions. De- definitely uh, keep in close contact with the, the special education teacher as well as the general education teacher, and just definitely, definitely get a feel of what's of what's going on. And and also know that the parent doesn't have to always be physically in the room to attend the meeting as well. Because I know we have a, there's an issue. You know, sometimes with our parents that uh, if they can't attend the meeting physically then they don't they don't show up or something like that. But knowing that they can also attend meetings by the phone as well. And so also knowing that is is, is good because a lot of times parents are like, I can't I can't make this. I don't I don't have transportation. I can't do this or I they they have their own specific reasons why they can't attend the meeting. <coughs> Excuse me. But knowing that they can also attend the meeting by phone as well. But definitely asking asking as much questions as possible. If you don't understand uh ask a question about that, but definitely um, do that. So George, Ken, is it legal for the school district to have an IP meeting without the parent present at all? They cannot have an IP meeting. As far as, as, far as I understand, they cannot have an IP meeting without the parent okay. at all. They okay. can't. Okay. That's good to know. So in closing, cause I don't want to keep you, I could talk to you all day about education. <laughs> um, <laughs> If you could share a little bit more about your work in terms of um, autism awareness, are you involved at all in the process and the research and advocacy? Absolutely. Um, so I definitely do 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 autism awareness work, and I, I wanted I was just actually talking to somebody earlier. Um, I had a T-shirt on that had autism dad on it, and 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 it is a, it's a definitely a conversation starter. So sometimes people see the T-shirts and things like that. You know, it's kind of it's the spark the conversation and to kind of get into that whole thing about what autism is and and, and you know, I give that whole spiel. But but that I'm out there talking to people. As I mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of directors of an organization called Mississippi Families as Allies, mm-hmm. and that um, organization supports parents who are raising kids with mental health and behavior issues and autism, you know, falls in that, falls in there. But um, I'm actually getting ready to introduce a proposal to, uh, there, there was a law passed called Kevin and, uh, Kevin and Avante's law. And basically what that law um, basically does is provide funding to organizations uh, for educational training and things like that for children who who wonder and see my son he's a he has a tendency to elope so he's a he's a wonder if you're not familiar with Kit, uh, there's a kid named uh, Kevin I forgot his last name but Kevin and there's a kid there was a kid from New York named Levante Quindo hope I'm saying that right but basically what happened was those kids wandered from school uh, and they ended up drowning and, mm. and, and passing away and so the parents were very vigilant on that not happening ever again. So they uh, lobbied Congress and things like that. And they had a law passed where they would provide funding for people who were educating uh, first responders, uh, parents, and things like that on how to care for uh, children and how to service those kids who have a, a tendency to wander off. And so, like I said, with my son being a wanderer, uh, 
that's something that I definitely um, was was interested in. And so, like I said, there was a, a law passed called Kevin Levante's Law that provides $2 million of funding for organizations that um, provide that training to first responders and law enforcement and things like that, uh, pretty much making them aware and, and how to care for children within the schools and outside the schools for kids who wander. And so I'm, I'm actually proposing that or proposing that to the board that I serve on as far as being a part of that. And so, um, so I have that piece right there. Uh, also, I co I co-organized a event where we were working with fathers. It's actually a day of support for fathers who are raising children with special needs. And we did that uh, actually two years in a row where we actually met with dads. And uh, uh, a lot of people don't know, but there are actually a lot of dads who are uh, active in their child's, in their child's care. You know, so I actually, uh, actually uh, co-organized co an event you know, working with those dads, working with kids with special needs. So I've done that. And another thing that I'm doing that's very, very, um, uh, I think is important, is I've worked with local pastors in the community on autism awareness, letting them know what autism is and how to better serve children, not only with autism, but other special needs as well, because what a lot of people don't know, especially the, um, the faith-based community, especially a lot of pastors, is that they're missing an entire block uh, of people that could be congregants because their child is their child has special needs and a lot of parents are not attending church because a lot of times the church is not set up mm-hmm. to care for children with special needs at that particular time. So I've uh, organized local pastors in the community on autism and other special needs and how to uh, help make their their church. Uh, well, I guess for a lack of a better term, make it more special needs friendly. Mm-hmm. And like I said, cause a lot of parents are not attending church because as a matter of fact, like even with me personally, you know, with, you know, this, you know, we're talking confessions, you know, a lot of times uh, my family, we alternate days as far as like church from time to time because we can't all attend church at the same time wow. because because I, because the church is not, especially, especially growing up in a rural environment, and you, and you have the old school Southern Baptist Church. It's still very much old school Southern Baptist Church, and it's mm-hmm. not set up for the child with special needs in a lot of cases. And so, what happens with us sometimes is that I go to church this Sunday, or I may go to church this time, and then. I come home and then wife goes or she may go and then I stay home and things like that because the church is not set up. And so I definitely want to put that out there, definitely for the faith-based community that there is a population that they're missing because there are families that are raising kids with special needs who feel like they can't go to the church because of what people might say or it's not set up for those particular parents that are raising kids with special needs. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing that, doing that work as well. You know, it's it's. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that story. Years ago, when my husband came home from the military, I was he was in the process of transitioning home from the military, so I was looking for a church home for us. And I was visiting this one church for a month, and I really enjoyed it. But four weeks straight, I enjoyed every Sunday service until the day. Now my son was about one years old, then, and he was literally just being fussy. He was fussy. He's a fussy. He's a fussy baby. At that on that day, we got put out. We were sitting in the back, and this is a, a, a pretty large church, you know, and I'm not big, a big fan of mega churches, but this was a pretty big church, and I kind of, I liked it, and we were sitting in the back, wow. 
And the woman tapped us on the shoulder and said, mom, you can go to the cry room. Now, he wasn't crying. He was just kind of jerking around and cooing or whatever he was doing that an infant would do or a, a small toddler. And we got put out. And I was thinking, I don't like this. Now, they had a child wow. center, a very sophisticated child center, but I don't know you. I'm not about to leave him in there with you, you know? So, right, um, that's right. So I can understand the challenges that parents, you know, may be facing, especially when their kids have different needs and stuff. So. And I, I totally, I think that's a very good point you bring up because I never went back. That was my last visit there. I was like, no, nah, because what you're not going to do is make me put him in your daycare center. I don't know you guys. There's too many people in here for me to put him in there. Right. Um, I read him with me. He just had a moment when he was a little fussy. I mean, just a week or two before he won a little costume contest, but now we're getting put out and put into the cry room and, you know, so it's, it is tough. It's tough for parents. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up that point and the work you're doing with that, right. because that's very important. It's very important. So, you know, I, I keep saying, I'm not going to keep you as we close out. Is there anything else you want to share with our family out there about your work, about what you do or anything, any just parting advice? Now, I, I would just say that, first of all, thank you for having me on and speaking with your audience. Um, I really, really do appreciate it. Absolutely. But I would just say continue to be, uh, as I mentioned earlier, continue to keep the lines of communication open with uh, your child's educator because um, we can't assume that the, the teacher knows everything and we can't just always take the teacher at, at face value. You know, So I always keep that line the communication open. Like I said, there are diff there are different things as far as like assisting their child with the education process. There are different programs that um, that parents can use to help their child um, um, academically. Uh, definitely ask about those things. That, like uh, what they'll see, uh, and that, and that and that goes back to the question you asked earlier. A lot of the things that we're doing is different than when uh, I was growing up. Because a lot of the things are. Uh, computer-based. There are a lot of computer programs that we use in the schools now that weren't being used, of course, when, you know, when I was in school. So, and these are actually programs that, that, you know, that the kids can use at home. So ask about the programs that the child is using in the school. What type of programs are they using to help, you know, educate their child? What type of programs they use for interventions and things like that? And, uh, Get, get that information and then use those programs uh, at home as well to help uh, reinforce what's being done in the school. So definitely using those computer programs, ask about those, use those programs at home to help reinforce what's going on in school. And definitely if you have questions, you feel uneasy about something, uh, ask about it. Uh, uh, meet, like I said, if, if, if it's nothing but a phone call or email, definitely, definitely um, be vigilant. Uh, and and I, and I and I promise you, parents definitely recognize. I mean, teachers definitely recognize those kids whose parents are very very vigilant in their child's education. They 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 are. They definitely definitely recognize. Uh, and like I said, we we know. Okay, this child's parent. I mean, this child this child's parent is very active. And we and we know those parents. We we know, we know those parents. You know, and so definitely continue to be vigilant in any any way possible. Um, like I said, uh, any questions they may have, uh, definitely. Because the way I look at, it, I mean, as an educator, we we're, we're here to serve we're professionals, but at the same time, we're also public service as well, and we're here to serve. And so, whatever uh, information you need, and that's our job. 
know to serve. So if there's any questions that you have, any concerns, don't be afraid to raise those concerns and things like that. And so, absolutely. Okay, well, Mr. Stewart, is there any way that folks can follow you on social media? I know I'm personally connected with you on LinkedIn. Um, did you want to share the information, how folks can keep up with you? Sure. I'm, um, as far as on social media, I am on, on Twitter, uh, G-S-T-E-W, the number two at Twitter, um, and also on Instagram as well, George Stewart. And uh, I post a lot of things on there dealing with social issues and education and things like that. So a, a lot of what I, you know, uh, what I, that I didn't say as far as like in this phone calls or anything like that, it, it, I'm sure I'll post some things uh, on there that hopefully they have some questions. And this, uh, just reach out, uh, send me a direct message, anything like that. If your listeners have a question that I was, that I didn't answer on, on the call, um, just uh, send me a direct message, and, and I would definitely respond uh, to them. So G Stu two on Twitter, George Stewart, I think George Stewart the second on uh, Instagram, and just uh, send, send me a message. And I, I like to, I would definitely uh, get back to them if they have any questions or concerns. And, and I'm glad you asked that too, because if by any chance there is a listener that that have a question or anything like that or a concern, I'm definitely as I said, I'm work with service. And so if they don't feel like they can trust the individuals, you know, within the school, uh, anything like that, or just have a question that they want to ask, something like that, they can definitely reach out to me, direct message me, and I would definitely answer those questions uh, to the best of my ability. Okay, sounds good. Well, again, thank you, George Stewart II out of Jackson, Mississippi, Phi Beta Sigma, Divine Nine in the That's House. Right. Um, That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, We got the blue in common. I'm Sigma Gamma Rho, so we got the blue in common. Uh huh. Um, And 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 the Sigma. That's right. That's Sigma. Sigma. Sigma love right now. This this is absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's right. Sigma love. Sigma love. So thank you again for being on the show. I absolutely had to have you. Um, And for everybody else, this of course has been fun. It's been great. It's been very informative. Continue to um, listen to Confessions of Melanated Queen. Follow us at confessionsofmelanatedqueen.com to see what's happening. If you have not picked up the book, pick up the book at confessionsofmelanatedqueen.com. You guys, you know, if you have any questions or concerns, also know that you can hit me up at laurentmeeks at gmail.com and I look forward to talking to you guys next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to Confessions of a Melanated Queen. Follow Dr. Meeks on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dr. Lauren Meeks. If you have a confession, visit confessionsofamelanatedqueen.com and share your story. Peace and love.